Cuba, this is on the ground. As the U.S. funnels more weapons to Ukraine, prolonging the war and ensuring more death and destruction, Cuba prepares to celebrate the lives of workers in its biggest annual celebration, International Workers' Day. I came to the May Day Brigade because I wanted to experience May Day in revolutionary Cuba. Plus, here and around the world, people are suffering more impacts from the climate catastrophe. We'll hear voices from a rally for Earth Day in front of the White House. I'm here, like many of you, because the climate crisis is personal, because it's harming the people that I love and the places that I call home, because we can't breathe the air and we can't drink the poison water, and our fields are dry and our homes are burning, and they want to tell us that it costs too much to stop that. And cannabis activists want President Biden to also keep his promises to decriminalize marijuana. We speak to Deshita Dawson, cannabis program manager for the city of Portland. We definitely are on the precipice of really a, a battle of how cannabis legalization is going to happen at a national level. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam with this special edition from Havana, Cuba. Well, more than 1,000 visitors from around the world are expected to join Cubans here on Sunday, May 1st for International Workers' Day, the first public celebration of the holiday since 2019, before COVID pandemic restrictions were put into place for two years. In addition to the march to Havana's Plaza of the Revolution on May Day, the holiday program for solidarity activists stretches over three days to include visits to hear Cuban workers discuss the impact of the 60-year U.S. economic blockade, which was actually tightened during the pandemic by the Trump and Biden administrations. Describing the Speak Out by Cuban workers, Ismael Julet Perez, a member of the Federation of Cuban Workers Secretariat, said, quote, at every workplace, a union meeting will be held to express opinions about imperialist aggression, end quote. I asked Yamil Chabor, who was part of the International May Day Work Brigade, why he traveled from Queens, New York, to celebrate May Day in Cuba. You know, International Workers' Day, I want to have this experience, this experience with many different international delegations. My father and my uncle were part of the EPL, Ejército Popular de Liberación, the Popular Liberation Army in Colombia. They were socialist guerrilla fighters in Colombia, and my father had to flee out of Colombia. He was in prison for seven years because the Colombian military captured him. He was in prison with other guerrilla fighters from the M19 movement. And after getting out of prison, he had to flee out and cross the Mexican border into the U.S., where he would eventually meet my mother in New York, and they would have me. I guess my father had had an influence his past. I mean, it's in my DNA. But other than that, you know, introducing to me to these topics. I remember uh, talking to me about uh, Hugo Chavez. I remember there was a time where I thought Hugo Chavez was a bad person, and he told me his two favorite revolutionaries were Nelson Mandela and then Hugo Chavez. I'm really interested in how people from the Global South or with connections to the Global South are viewing what's happening right now with the war in Ukraine and how it's being reported by other media. 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there's just, it's not a black and white situation. There's a lot of gray areas to cover. And my point of view is, you know, we have to be against the expansion of NATO. We have to understand where NATO is. NATO is a pan-European white supremacist military project that we must stand against. Whether we have our differences with the Russian state, which is not a socialist state, it's a capitalist state, but we have to see how the United States is trying to take advantage of a certain opportunity and certain media things of like saying that they have to respect Ukrainian self-determination, which is hypocrisy because they don't respect the self-determination of Cuba. You know, they have a blockade for over 60 years. So why would you say you got to respect the self-determination of another country that supposedly is being oppressed by Russia and at the same time arming neo-Nazis? Meanwhile, anti-war activists continue to sound the alarm over the U.S. role in escalating the war in Ukraine and negating diplomacy to have Russia mired in a prolonged conflict. They point to the visit to Kiev by Defense Secretary Austin and Secretary of State Blinken and how the U.S. is equipping and organizing the Ukrainian war effort. Richard Sakwa, professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent, told journalist Aaron Mate that the U.S. wants to weaken Russia as a means to counter China. The United States feels that in one way or another it is to its advantage for this conflict to continue. The assumption being that uh, sanctions become ever tougher, that Russia will be debilitated and ultimately uh, weakened as a serious long-term competitor. It was never a full-scale peer competitor, but nevertheless uh, the feeling is that uh, a decisive blow could be dealt to Russia before the U.S. pivots on to take on China more substantively. And writing in Common Dreams this week, Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin and author Nicholas Davies said that because Russia intends to destroy as much of the U.S. weaponry as possible, and because Russia is weathering economic sanctions, it is unclear if the U.S. war effort is effective. They added that intervention by the United Nations is the best possibility for brokering peace by a truly neutral party. In its June 2021 report to the United Nations, Cuba detailed that the 60-year blockade had cost the country $147.8 billion. The report added, quote, taking into account the depreciation of the dollar against the price of gold in the international market, the blockade has caused quantifiable damages of more than $1.3 trillion. Between April and December 2020 alone, such policy brought about more than $3.5 billion in losses for Cuba, end quote. While this economic war is a longstanding aggression by the U.S. in this hemisphere, it is not a singular U.S. crime. Lawyer Stephen Donziger was released from 993 days of detention on Monday, April 25th, ending a chapter in his decades-long legal fight with Chevron after Donziger won in 1993 a $9.5 billion settlement on behalf of farmers and indigenous people living near the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest. For more insight into the U.S. role in Cuba and the Caribbean in particular, I spoke to Pambana Bassett, a New Yorker who has spent almost all of her young adult life working in and studying in the Caribbean. She now works in Cuba. 
Greetings to all of the listeners. Such a pleasure uh, to be with you today. My name is Pambana Bassett, and I'm the co-director of the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective, our Cuba program here in Havana, where we work alongside the Centro Memorial Martin Luther King, the MLK Center. And our primary role is to bring people from the U.S., mobilize the grassroots, prioritizing black indigenous people of color to come to Cuba to see the realities that Cuban people face, the impacts of the U.S. blockade and negative policies against the Cuban people, and also to learn about the achievements, which are tremendous, uh, that the Cuban people have sought out in these 63 years of a revolutionary process. I know that you've lived in other Caribbean countries and like you have a very unique experience. So talk a little bit about what you experienced in other countries and what you've experienced here. Absolutely. So specifically, I lived in Jamaica. I did my master's at the University of the West Indies, regional public university, and was part of solidarity work there. And uh, before that, lived in Belize and Central America and the Caribbean, uh, doing work with the Library of African and Indigenous Studies and accompanying grassroots struggles for land rights of Garifuna and African Creole peoples. And while the Caribbean is a region that has been hard hit by climate change, by colonialism, the legacy of enslavement and genocide is very felt in the day to day. And these are unfortunately countries that despite the people's best efforts to mobilize for governments that represent them are under neoliberal regimes. They're really under U.S. dominance. And that means militarism, that means poverty, that means people facing daily indignities. Um, and these are black people who uh, you know, have the right to self-determination, uh, to have, you know, have the desire to practice solidarity, but because of the systems they live under, we're not able to do that. The difference in Cuba is really stark. This is a, a people who have been able to achieve social programs in healthcare, in medicine, in housing, in the nationalization of land, uh, in subsidized telecommunications, transportation. Those things have just been privatized in the Caribbean, but in Cuba they have not. They've actually been assured as common goods for the people. And this is a country that's majority black. It's majority African descendant. You can see that being here, just walking around in Havana, but certainly across the island. And these are people who have dared uh, to build a new system. Despite those accomplishments, I know you've also seen the impacts of the blockade and sanctions. So talk a little bit about that. Ooh, sis, yes. Um, so it is really hard. I mean, the blockade targets very particularly food, medicine, fuel, and Cuba's ability to interact with other countries and trade. And that has impacts in the day-to-day. And you see that along race, class, and gender in really strong ways. One, because of just the historical accumulation of wealth of white Cubans compared to black Cubans. And also because, you know, when Cubans go to the U.S., for example, it's white Cubans who do better economically and can send money home. But in general, everybody in this island uh, suffers the blockade that is waiting for the bus for hours, despite it being subsidized and really cheap and really great bus routes. There's just not the fuel. Um, Food shortages, the cost of fuel of food is going up. It's skyrocketing. Like most island nations, Cuba imports the majority of its food. 
just the daily experiences having an expert public health system but not having the medicines like aspirins having a biochemical engineering facility that can make vaccines that have saved lives but not being able to access certain cancer medicines because but despite that they've created what four vaccines though yes. right Yes, it is technically five vaccines because they're variations of some, but yes, incredible. And I was just sharing that I got um, vaccinated with Abdallah and the rollout was so beautiful. You could just tell it's very community rooted healthcare and people trust the system and the vaccines have worked. I mean, people are, are not dying. And Cuba has also exported them across the world to the Sahari people, to Vietnam, to Argentina, to Mexico. And they would like to send it across the world if there wasn't, you know, this U.S. policy of isolating Cuba. Yeah. So a lot of people, when they think about Cuba, they think about these demonstrations last year and Cuba put out their information that, that these were instigations by people that didn't reflect the majority of the people, that these a lot of times were paid uh, agents. Um, what did you see here on the ground and, and what do you think really happened? Uh, well, certainly there has been a media campaign against Cuba for decades, and multi-millions of dollars have been spent on that. And certainly there is interventionism. Um, every year the House Appropriation Bill gives, like, recently it was $20 million to these, you know, so-called NGOs. Um, but people have real concerns here. There is rising inequality because of the pandemic, because whenever there's a hard time, you know, people with less cash suffer more. And so people have justifiable concerns about the future of this country. Um, but what we saw was the U.S. corporate media painting it as though Cuban people were against their government and against their process. And that to me is not the case. Um, from the work that I do daily and also just living here and meeting with people, people defend their socialized health care, education. They have great pride in themselves um, as Cuban people who have, I mean, unequivocally built an alternative that doesn't exist in many places of the, in the world. So definitely uh, what we saw from Biden and politicians, I mean, the mayor of Miami also threatening to militarily invade Cuba. I mean, just ridiculous things. To bomb, right? right. I mean, these are obscenities. And we saw Biden put in place more sanctions on top of Trump's 243 additional sanctions on top of the blockade. And so what we've seen is the U.S. Uh, respond to people's concerns in Cuba by making their life harder. It does not make sense. It's wrong. It's immoral. It's inhuman. And we should, as people in the U.S., primarily you know, call for a change uh, to the end of sanctions and the blockade as the best way to be in solidarity with all Cuban people. Right. For the people who are listening, and these is, we have listeners all over the country, really all over the world, what can they do to, I guess especially in the U.S., to make a difference? Because a lot of times people just feel powerless in the face of big government decisions, even though these people we elect and they're supposed to be representing what we want. And I think the last polls I heard, people were definitely against sanctions on Cuba. And we are in step with the majority of the world that every year votes against these sanctions and calls for an end to them in the United Nations. 
Absolutely. The majority of the world, I mean, almost every country in the world and the people call against sanctions. They are wrong and they target people. That's what they do. They make people's life really hard. So don't despair. Um, We can organize and we can make change. Um, So I suggest that people find out where do their congressional representatives stand on particular issues when it comes to Cuba. Um, In December, 114 House Democrats signed a letter um, that involved the leadership of Barbara Lee and Bobby Rush, who have been stalwarts for ending the blockade uh, for many decades that called for the end of sanctions and to recognize that the blockade is what needs to end. People should also contact their mayors, uh, find out about the Saving Lives campaign. That's union reps, school boards, uh, city councils calling for the end of the blockade and calling for medical cooperation. Our communities want Cuban vaccines, want Cuban doctors who aren't just trying to make money but are trying to save lives. You can also be involved in the monthly caravans that were started by Puentes del Amor also do presentations in your libraries and um, bookshops and what have you. People can also go on delegations. Uh, There are many organizations that do the MIND, the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective, also IFCO, Pastors for Peace, and they also do caravans. There are a number of organizations that facilitate travel to Cuba so that you can see for yourself and then bring that message back home. And just educate yourself. Listen to radio stations such as this and your program, um, Breakthrough news, belly of the beast, there are people's forum, there are many people who are telling the truth about Cuba and the U.S.'s role in making life hard here, and yet how the Cuban people have done so much that they don't want us to know about. Okay, thank you, Pambana. Culture Media, this year's May Day in Cuba is dedicated to the 64th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, the birth of Cuba's national hero, Jose Marti, and the historical leader of the Cuban Revolution, Fidel Castro. We had a chance to visit the new Fidel Castro Ruse Center in Havana, which is dedicated to the study and dissemination of Fidel's thought and work. And we promise to bring you a report on this amazing center in the coming weeks. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Esperado y don Miguel no les quiere pagar. Pues. 
for Liz Schuler. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Rev. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz Schuler, AFL-CIO president, and like the Rev said, 12 and a half million working people, 57 unions across all industries across this country. And we are going to help build the clean energy future. Thank you, Fight for Our Future Coalition, for bringing us together. I know we have allies and partners and unions right here in front with the painters, and I know SEIU is here, AFT. So great to see so many of you, and I would say especially our young people. I'm looking at all the children in the audience, and you're our next generation of leaders out here in this fight. Labor issues and climate issues are two sides of the same coin. And I believe that the solution to the climate crisis runs right through the labor movement. And unions, we have boots on the ground in every community, in every corner of the country. And we are already on the front lines of the climate crisis. When there's a hurricane, when there's a flood or a wildfire, it's our members who are on the ground fixing the power lines, rebuilding the damaged infrastructure. And we see the impacts of the climate crisis every single day, how it affects not just our jobs, but our families and our communities. And as weather gets more extreme, with colder winters and hotter summers, working people are paying the price. I grew up in Oregon, way out on the West Coast. And you remember last summer, there was a record heat wave out in Oregon and farm workers were out in the fields working in temperatures as high as 104 degrees. And one man, Sebastian Francisco Perez, was working on a farm trying to save money and have a baby and start a family. He was moving irrigation lines in the fields in the heat, 104 degree heat for hours. And when his coworkers realized they hadn't seen him in a long time, they started searching for him and they found him and he was unresponsive. He died on the job from heat exposure. He was just 38 years old. That does not have to happen. That should not happen. And if we don't address our climate crisis, there will be more stories like Sebastian's. We cannot accept that. And there's no question that the labor movement feels the urgency of addressing the climate crisis every single day. We know we have to do more than just react and rebuild. We have to get ahead of this crisis by creating the next generation of solutions and clean energy. So the bipartisan infrastructure is a good start. It's going to help us build those national electrical vehicle charging networks. We're going to make buildings more efficient. We're going to replace lead pipes to clean up our water and so much more. But we have to keep going. And the problem is too big to stop there. So let's call on Congress, folks, to pass the Building Better America agenda and make historic investments in clean energy that is made in America. We can make those solar panels here. We can make those offshore wind turbines here. And they should be built in American factories. And those jobs, those jobs, they should be good jobs 
so the next generation can feed their families and have job security. They should be careers, not gig contracts. They should be safe jobs with good pay. So let's build a future where labor and environmental standards go hand in hand. Let's hold companies feet to the fire. Let's make jobs in solar and wind and electric vehicles, greener public transit. Let's make all those jobs good union jobs from day one. Together we can do this. We can make that happen. We can make those opportunities available to every person in every community, especially those most harmed by the climate crisis. Communities of color who have long borne the brunt of pollution and climate change should be at the center of our solutions to the crisis because we cannot move forward if some of us are still left behind. So let's raise our voices. Can we do that? Let's fight for the change we need. And let's build a better country and a better planet together. Thank you. One more time for Liz Schuler. Let me say this. Climate justice is racial justice. And racial justice is climate justice. Those two things go together. And we must break down the silos in our movements between jobs and care and climate and justice. And one of the amazing unions, and my dear brother, I actually said him earlier, but he's been a dear brother to me for so many years, is Jerry Hudson, who is Secretary Treasurer of SEIU. I don't even need that announcement. He's so, so close to me. And one of the things about Jerry in his role is that he has loved on, particularly the next generation, understanding that this climate crisis is not just about equality, but we're also fighting for existence. And so alongside and behind me are those amazing workers from SIU from North Carolina. Come on, y'all. I'm going to say one more time, from North Carolina, who did what union workers did, got on the bus early this morning to get here on time. So you better make some noise for them and for Jerry Hudson and S-E-I-U. Sisters and brothers, the time is now. Those of us who've sat back for many years watching this climate crisis deepen have been urging that we needed to build a coalition powerful enough, yes. powerful enough to demand justice and climate action now. When you look around you, I hope you not only see folks you've always known, but you see folks that you've only just recently met. I'm so glad to listen to my sister from the AFL-CIO. Because we know that climate action is not just an environmental issue. 
It's a labor issue, too. And we've always known that. Right? But we can't talk about labor or climate without mentioning the ugly, long history of racism in America. Our members come from all over this country. All over this country. They are mostly black and brown women. They not only know something about the impact of climate. We come from Puerto Rico. How could we not know? Right? We come from all over the West Coast. How could we not know what wildfires and floods happening all around us? How can we not know? So we are clear that a coalition that in some ways demands climate action is a coalition that demands good jobs, good union jobs. But it also demands, because how could we do otherwise, racial justice? You ain't going to arrive at any of all of those others unless you deal with that as well. And so we from SEIU are here to say we stand for bold climate action now. We stand for creating good jobs. We stand for making sure that we create a human infrastructure, a human infrastructure in this country that can take care of the most vulnerable among us. I come here with my sisters and brothers who made a long trek up from North Carolina. And I want to bring up to end my remarks, my sister, Deborah McAllister, who's got an important story to tell. She's a home care worker from North Carolina, and she can tell you a little bit about how sometimes we have to respond to the climate crisis. Sister Deborah. some noise and let everybody know that we here we're live and well lafayette square how's everybody doing my name is deborah McAllister, and i'm from burgall north carolina come on north carolina i've been a home care worker for over seven years taking care of my mother and i come from a state that has increasingly seeing the effects of the climate change so not long ago, you heard of Hurricane Florence. Yes, you have. Devastated that area that we live in. Yes, and my cousin, who lives not but 10 minutes away in a neighboring town called Willard, she lost everything. Water was up to her knees in her house. And so my heart still goes out to all the surrounding areas, which is my community, our community. That is still waiting. We're still waiting for help and to get back on our feet. Now, my cousin, she wanted to be here, but she's suffering from some health issues. Otherwise, she would be live and in living color today to tell you just what those effects of that hurricane did to her and her family. But as always, the case for home care workers, since we're not offered 
basic benefits like quality health care coverage and paid time off, we cannot always make it to these type of trips. So had the hurricane just been a little bit more intense, guess what? I would have been in the same boat that my cousin is in. Everything gone. Thank you. And with my mother, who can't walk, she has Alzheimer's, dementia, I already have difficulty providing care for her because the home care industry has absolutely no support. Read my lips, no support. So without proper funding in home care and climate change getting worse by the minute, I am not sure about tomorrow. And that's why our elected officials have to act now. Immediately, if not sooner. Why? Because the next time, I could be the one that lose my home. I could be the one displaced. Or I could be the one unable to care for my 80-year-old mother. Either way, a hurricane or a lack of uh, investment in home care. We're fighting for our future and we're not going to stop until victory is won. We want the V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. We want to see victory. Thank you and happy Earth Day. What's up everyone? Are you ready to fight for our futures? Are you ready to fight for climate justice? I know I'm ready. I think it's about time we get a climate bill passed. Thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you to the Green New Deal Network and all of the groups that put on this rally and this amazing national mobilization. My name is Magnolia, I'm 18, and I'm so honored to be here today representing Zero Hour, an international youth-led climate justice organization. Four years ago, Zero Hour organized the Youth Climate March here in D.C. and in over two dozen cities around the world. And now we're here today because Congress has a historic opportunity and the ability to pass the first national comprehensive progressive climate legislation. And I want to acknowledge that this moment didn't just happen out of nowhere. This happened because we organized. Yeah, let's hear it for the organizers. We're here to fight for our futures, but we're also here to fight for the frontline communities that are currently being impacted by the climate crisis, from the San Francisco Bay to the Gulf South to right here in Washington, D.C. We know that we're in a climate emergency and we need to act now. And I'm here, like many of you, because the climate crisis is personal, because it's harming the people that I love and the places that I call home, because we can't breathe the air and we can't drink the poison water and our fields are dry and our homes are burning and they want to tell us that it costs too much to stop that. We are not afraid to stand up to the fossil fuel industry because we know that our future is fossil free and it's time for an equitable transition to renewables. Because we deserve a future where a good job, a living wage, clean air, clean water are things that everyone should have, no matter who you are. And we're here to hold our leaders accountable. Because in 2020, we went out and we organized. And we stood in line for hours. We got out the vote. We stood up to voter suppression. 
sacrificing jobs and school to elect Joe Biden, to elect Democrats and secure a majority in the Senate. And they owe it to us to pass this bill. We voted for them because they told us they would fight for us. And now they need to prove that to us by passing $550 billion in climate investments now. And we know that the fight is not over. That This is just a start to what we need to tackle the climate crisis. And we're going to keep fighting till we get a Green New Deal. Because this is zero hour to act on the climate crisis. So when I say this is, you say zero hour. This is. This is. Thank you. Come on, y'all. Give it up for y'all. That's what we need. Let me, let me say this, because that's actually a great segue to our next speaker, that we're out here, and we're, I want to be very, very clear that this is not about Democrat or Republican. This is about humanity. The reason why we're out here is that we're fighting for our planet. And this is the only planet we got. Everybody look up for a second. Look up at that amazing, beautiful sky. That's what we're fighting for, clean air and clean water. Now, I don't care who you are, male, female, black, white, brown, red, yellow, straight, gay, theist, atheist, human. You need clean air and clean water. And so all we're asking for is that we ensure that this amazing planet is here for the next generation. That's all we're fighting for. So that a hundred years from now, that next generation, when they show up, they will look back upon this moment in 2022 and look back upon you in this Lafayette Square, if it's even here, and they will say thank you because those humans back then fought for us to have clean air and clean water. Make some noise. Our next speaker is someone very dear to me. It is Michelle Roberts. She's the national co-coordinator of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance for Chemical Policy Reform, a national network of legacy environmental justice fence-line communities, and advocates who serve them. She also serves as the environmental justice producer for WPFW 89.3 FM right here in Washington, D.C. on the ground show, Voices of Resistance. Please make some noise for Michelle Roberts! How you doing, everyone? How you doing, Washington? How are you doing? What you here for? This ain't no party. This ain't no party. This ain't no party. In fact, Ms. Dora Williams of the NCPC, Delaware Concerned Residents of Environmental Justice, would say, this ain't no ordinary worship. Are you here to serve? Have you been called? I can't hear you. I don't think you've been called for justice. Y'all just came for a party. I didn't come for a party. I came to serve. What about you? 
Let me tell you something. This here climate justice piece ain't no ordinary worship. This is about defending our earth. This is about raising up racial justice. This is about, yes, jobs for justice, but this is also about somebody might stone me right now, but it's okay because I can run. This is about having justice in the jobs. Hallelujah. Oh, yes. Some of us can't get to them jobs, and we got to get us a pathway to get there if we're talking about real hardcore justice. Can I say justice? You say? They didn't hear you. We're still waiting. This is about our humanity. We are the Environmental Justice Health Alliance for Chemical Policy Reform. Why? Because these chemicals range from the front door of our house to the Ukraine. These chemicals range from the front door of our house to the schools. These chemicals go from one side to the other with no health care for us. These chemicals make sure that our poor children can't graduate from school with their education intact. Oh, yes, we want to build back better, but we want you to know that we've been on this planet for 500, waiting, and now is the time. Now is the time. Yesterday was the time. But we talking about today because we in the state of now, and it's on you and me, boo-boo, what we going to do about it. What we going to do about it. We got folks on the other side that we don't even think about. We call them sacrifice zones. Who lives like that? We don't have to go to Ukraine. We could go on the other side of our communities. This has got to stop. And we can't hear that this is how the government works. No, 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 no. This is a new democracy. This is the new Jerusalem. This is about a new assembly where we all have the right to be what? Free. Free to breathe clean air, to drink clean water, to have access to clean jobs, to have access to clean schools, to have the ability to graduate, to have the ability to have the job, and to have the ability for all of us, not just some to prosper, and then last, for us to live in peace. We cannot take toxicity into peace. It is not working. I'm a scientist by training, but I'm a wetlands biologist, and I do know we can all live in harmony. We need the moral and political will. I'm asking you now, what you gonna do about it? And oh, by the way, have a little party, have a little fun, but at the end of the day, as my father, and I have to give a shout-out to Les Roberts Sr., and a shout-out to Jacqueline Robert, Dickerson Roberts, who birthed and raised me and taught me we all have the right to live and work and prosper. We hold these rights to be free of all of us to be true to this democracy. Not one of us should be the sacrifice. And oh, by the way, to my national friends, when we sit down and talk with this here Congress, 
We better make sure that we bring that moral and political consciousness into those meetings because you said you were about justice and we about justice. And if we could be about justice, we can bring it to the voting booth and we can make it happen. Everybody say justice for all. Hallelujah. That was On the Ground's environmental producer, Michelle Roberts, and before her, other activists speaking at the Fight for Our Future rally for climate, care, jobs, and justice, held Saturday, April 23, 2022, in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. DC go go come on oh come on come on y'all gotta dance come on it's Earth Day come on and dance ah 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 go 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 get the hands in the air get the hands in the air oh let's go climate justice come on come on yeah oh where you from now where you where where you from now? Is DC in the house? Somebody say yeah. Is Maryland in the This is on the ground, on the groundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam with this special edition from Havana, Cuba. But before I left DC, the National Cannabis Policy Summit was held in Northwest DC. According to the summit organizers, the conversation around transitioning existing state legal marketplaces toward a national marketplace is heating up and cannabis activists want president biden to also keep his promises to decriminalize marijuana contributor michael byfield attended the summit and spoke to Deshita dawson cannabis program manager for the city of portland i think we definitely are on the precipice of really a, a battle of how cannabis legalization is going to happen at a national level on a state-by-state -state level to this, really till 2020, most states were really focused on having a new tax revenue and ensuring that people who previously had convictions or arrests were not in the industry. And of course, black and brown people are disproportionately criminalized from cannabis prohibition of past. And so as a result, the numbers and the makeup of the industry is heavily skewed towards white people and, and white men in particular for the ownership. They've been focused on the capitalism. And in the last 10 years, we've seen a surge of black and brown cannabis policy reform leaders that are focused on the equity, that are focused on the social justice. And it would take people of color, if you ask me, to come to the table and finally say, hey, if you made something illegal for all these years and had all these harsh punishments, how is it possible that you're now transitioning that into billions of dollars, tax revenue dollars for states without making restitution, without making repair or reform for those communities most harmed? And so we've asked the question for the last 10 years. And in 2020, after George Floyd, we had like a watershed moment as a country. And we've seen now social equity become this buzzword that doesn't really have ton of meat behind it, especially when industry players say it, but when industry advocates who understand it say it, what we're talking about is repairing the harm of the past prohibition that was racially biased in enforcement. And we're also talking about taking this new cannabis tax revenue to do that. Because a lot of times when we want to repair something in our communities, we say we don't have the funds for it. We don't have the resources. 
And for all of these states, this is new resource, unallocated, not part of the general fund, and as a result should be primarily focused on fixing the things that were broken in our communities as a result of the way it was criminalized. And so we start there. And then I would say the second piece that we've been focused on is how can we get more people of color in the industry? How is it possible that when it was criminalized, we were more prevalent and more likely to go to jail and have really, really negative outcomes as a result for our families, not just the individual, the families. We took wealth and income out of the homes as a result of this. We gave the police a reason to come in with SWAT level machinery to destroy our communities. And we still have it recovered. How is it possible that we are not allowing those people to be in the industry? And so now we have more advocacy around transitioning people who had previously been either operating in the industry or arrested or incarcerated into the space as owners in order to help make the industry more diverse, make the industry more reflective of the communities most harmed. What I hear a lot about about is really the economic parts of it. A, a lot of um, the people that I meet uh, continuously look to that in awe and you know we, we know about John Boehner which is the former Speaker of the House after he left politics that's the business he went into so there's this huge groundswell of people looking at the billions or the millions of dollars that they make I know here in Washington D.C. the District of Columbia is really trying to to shape how that industry is going to be equitably distributed and how we can we can move forward with that. I don't think it's fully done yet. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, first of all, in the D.C. area, it's certainly important for us to kind of move past what has been this gray market to determine what will the market actually look like. And we absolutely should be talking about social equity. Even now, D.C. still... For people of color, you're more likely to get stopped on the street for cannabis use on the street. Because, of course, that's the one thing that you're not allowed to do, right? At this point, it's decriminalized, but you can't use it publicly. But it will be the reason that you're stopped and we're still seeing black and brown people disproportionately stopped as a result. So we have within the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition regulators that are from the D.C. area. And the biggest thing that they're recognizing is that, unfortunately, the legislators don't really understand. I'm talking about black and brown legislators they don't really understand the social justice implications and the ways in which there are elements of the industry that we can deliberately and intentionally integrate equity-centered principles in the development of them. For example, when we're setting up a license structure, which doesn't really fully exist in D.C. yet, for real, for real, where people can buy from an adult use perspective, how are we taking what we know is a robust legacy already existing economy of supply and demand in the D.C. area and helping those people integrate if they want, right? Because again, I also don't believe that we have to force people into a legal market. I think more than enough people have given the right framework, they will actually transition. Most people don't want to be doing their business underground, honestly. I think most people actually do want to figure out how they are able to make themselves legitimate. And I think cannabis right now in the D.C. area is being debated using false legacy, maybe some of these gifting companies, gifting organizations, they're actually not the people that were most harmed when cannabis was illegal here. Right, right. So that's what we kind of got to, I am always trying to wade through what's the conflation. Because, you know, a lot of people co-opt our story. Mm -hmm. And that's been happening in cannabis and it's definitely been happening in D.C. And so my goal is to hope 
hopefully say, okay, we got to call those people out and not necessarily call them out to kick them out, but call them out to bring them back in alignment to say, yes, you may have an issue, but it, you're not the same as the, the, the market that was already existing and the communities that existed in D.C., black and brown communities for a long time that have been impacted. And so I think there's a, a little bit of that political strategy and a tussle on who gets to claim this equity, right? And I, I actually feel it's very clear in a chocolate city like DC that we know that it's, it's, it's probably the black and brown community. Recently, we've had news uh, in terms of the, uh, let me say the progressive community, it could be Democrats, it could be younger generation. They're putting pressure and really making a lot of noise about this administration, which is the Biden administration, addressing decriminalization, which is something that a lot of people feel that they have not really addressed, especially since Biden was one of the, uh, the architects of the criminalization of not just marijuana, but, but drugs and other crimes that, that a lot of people of color, uh, predominantly black people, suffered uh, during the 90s, right until today, if we want to yes. call it that. There are many states that are today still doing three strikes and you're out, mandatory minimums, and Joe Biden is absolutely responsible. Joe Biden is in his 80s, and he's been in politics since he was in his 20s. He has seen and done quite a bit that actually he needs to repair. And decriminalization at the federal level is the least he could do, primarily because he also ran on that platform. Many, many, many people within the cannabis space, um, non-Black people, voted for Joe Biden over a Trump, primarily because of his position on cannabis. Trump never gave one. And I think it's unfortunate because now we see that this may be, cannabis is one of those real polarizing topics that Joe's ineffective decriminalization efforts may lead people to, I will say, a less equitable approach to legalization. Because the Republicans are leading a charge right now to have legalization bills that they have put in place. But none of those bills have any social equity. None of those bills are trying to repair the harms of the past. They won't even acknowledge them in the preamble. So to me, I think we have to just recognize we're in a slippery slope that if Biden does not uphold his end of the deal in terms of cannabis and what he promised at the decriminalization at like a bare minimum, we risk losing a good chunk of people that aren't necessarily identifying with the Democrat or progressive movement and just want cannabis to be legalized, period. And they're making that exit. So I worry about the transition um, without him doing what he promised to do. So we're trying to hold him to that as an industry. We call him out pretty regularly. And I think at this point, the expectation is that before he leaves office, he needs to fully decriminalize. And, and that means stop arresting people for cannabis possession. Okay. Be, uh, before um, I close, uh, is there anything that you want to, that I missed that you want to say? I'm always excited to plug the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition, or CRCC, primarily because we didn't exist until two years ago. And that was because the majority of the regulators who were overseeing licensing and compliance in this industry were white male and predominantly coming from law enforcement. So the people who used to lock folks up getting put in place of, you know, roles where they get to tell folks who gets a license. We now have broken through. We've seen critical mass, especially with the East Coast lighting up. 
DC recently adding their control board. They combined it with alcohol and they have black and brown people there. And so to me, I feel like now we have a strong opportunity to, to actually provide the platform for the people's voice. We represent so many legalized markets where we still see that black people are not being integrated into the market and we're not even taking advantage of the medical market, honestly, for fear. And so we want to rectify that, we want to change that. And that means changing the way we approach regulation. It has to be more facilitative instead of enforcement. It has to be clearly equity-centered from the door with implementation theories, not being theories, but actually executed. That's the other challenge we have, right? Got a lot of people putting a lot of hope in place, but they're not executing it. And so CRCC has receipts. And what we're doing is aggregating those receipts in a way that people like yourself, people on the ground, can take that information and utilize it to be a better activist. Okay. How can people get in touch with you if they want to reach you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Dashida Dawson. That's D-A-S-H-E-E-D-A, Dawson. And you can also Google Weedhead. You're going to find me there. I took over that. And last but not least, the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition is found at crc-coalition.org. And Dashita Dawson, Cannabis Program Manager for the City of Portland, will have the last word on today's show. A special thank you to Michael Byfield for his production assistance. And thank you to Pambana Bassett of Witness for Peace. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also let us know you like the show on Twitter, patreon.com, and on Facebook at On the Ground Show, all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included La Greve, Where When, La Juega Mi Pero by Ronald Rubinell's Salsa Color, chants and music led by the Reverend Lennox Yearwood at the Fight for Our Future rally for climate, care, jobs, and justice. And our theme music is The Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. We look forward to bringing you more reports from Cuba in the coming weeks. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.